0: Turn together in the Holy Scriptures to Esther chapter 6. Our reading will be the whole chapter, and once again, the entire chapter is the text. So let's read the 14 verses of Esther chapter 6. In that night could not the king sleep. And he commanded to bring the book of records of the chronicles that were read before, and they were read before the king. And it was found written that Mordecai had told of Bigphana and Tiresh, two of the king's chamberlains, the keepers of the door, who sought to lay hand on the king Ahasuerus. And the king said, what honor and dignity! Hath been done to Mordecai for this? Then said the king's servants that ministered unto him, There is nothing done for him. And the king said, Who is in the court? Now, Haman was come into the outward court of the king's house to speak unto the king to hang Mordecai on the gallows that he had prepared for him. And the king's servant said unto him, Behold, Haman standeth in the court. And the king said, let him come in. So Haman came in. And the king said unto him, What shall be done unto the man whom the king delighteth to honor? Now Haman thought in his heart, To whom would the king delight to do honor more than to myself? And Haman answered the king, For the man whom the king delighteth to honor, Let the royal apparel be brought, which the king useth to wear, and the horse that the king rideth upon, and the crown royal which is set upon his head. And let this apparel and horse be delivered to the hand of one of the king's most noble princes, that they may array the man withal, whom the king delighteth to honor and bring him on horseback through the street of the city, and proclaim before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delighteth to honor. Then the king said to Haman, Make haste, and take the apparel and the horse, as thou hast said, and do even so to Mordecai the Jew that sitteth at the king's gate. Let nothing fail of all that thou hast spoken. Then took Haman the apparel and the horse, and arrayed Mordecai, and brought him on horseback through the street of the city, and proclaimed before him, Thus shall it be done unto the man whom the king delighteth to honor. And Mordecai came again to the king's gate. But Haman hasted to his house mourning, and having his head covered. And Haman told Zeresh his wife and all his friends everything that had befallen him. Then said his wise men, and Zeresh his wife unto him, If Mordecai be of the seed of the Jews, before whom thou hast begun to fall, thou shalt not prevail against him, but shalt surely fall before him. And while they were yet talking with him, came the king's chamberlains, and hasted to bring Haman unto the banquet that Esther had prepared. Thus far our reading in the Holy Scriptures. Beloved in the Lord, since it has been a little while since we last looked at Esther chapter 5, it does us well to review a little bit of the history where we are at in the book. You recall in chapter 5, we've come to a point of decisive action in the history. Having been persuaded by Mordecai's reasons, Esther has approached the king Ahasuerus unbidden and has done so at great personal risk. Yet in the providence of God, the golden scepter was tipped by the divine hand towards Esther such that the fickle king Ahasuerus was not displeased by Esther's intrusion into his private quarters, but instead received her with favor. And Esther was given a golden opportunity to make her request for her people and for their lives. We saw that in Esther 5, Esther responds very shrewdly and wisely and does not press the matter too quickly, but instead flatters the king with an invitation to a special banquet that she has prepared just for him and his right-hand man, Haman. And it is Esther's plan and strategy that at one of these banquets she will make her request to the king as well as reveal the terrible plot that Haman has launched against her people. In chapter 5, the first of those banquets took place. And yet Esther did not then reveal her request, but instead invited the king and Haman to a second banquet which would be held the following day. And we saw how Haman left that banquet puffed up in pride, but had his pride balloon popped by Mordecai, who again refused to pay him the public honors which Haman believed he deserved. And so pouting, Haman went home and explained the situation to Zeresh, his wife, and his friends whom he had assembled, and they had given him the advice to build large gallows, 75 feet tall, in the city of Shushan, whereon he could hang his enemy Mordecai and thus satisfy his lust for revenge. And that advice had pleased Haman, and he had set his hand to the work that evening, preparing that 75 foot pole. Now all that remained was to secure the king's permission to hang Mordecai's body on that pole for all of the city to see. And so we've come to another high point in the suspense of this book. It seemed at the beginning of chapter 5 that deliverance was going to come to the Jewish people. Esther had been granted admittance to the king, and yet now she delays in the making of her request. And as she delays, a new problem emerges. Haman is rushing as quickly as possible to secure the death of Mordecai. Will Haman succeed before Esther makes her request and exposes Haman for who he is? More suspense. And that brings us to Esther chapter 6. That night, on that night, the text begins. Identifying the timing of the events of Esther 6 as the night of that day on which Esther had approached the king. And that day on which the first banquet had been held. That very night, God would work quietly. In an unseen way. But that very night. God would sovereignly turn things around. And change the direction of history. We see the course of events moving in a certain direction. It seems as though Haman is going to thwart Esther. It seems as though Haman is going to secure the death of his enemy, Mordecai. And in a single night, God changes everything. And the great theme that we've been seeing throughout the book of Esther... The theme of God's sovereign power working even in arenas where he is unconfessed and unacknowledged. That God is the unseen king who yet preserves his people powerfully. That theme leaps again to the foreground in Esther chapter 6. As we see God's sovereign hand orchestrating what seems to be a whole host of coincidences. To accomplish his good purpose for the deliverance of his people. So let's enter into Esther chapter 6, considering it under the theme God's quiet work that night. God's quiet work that night. We're going to first look at a sleepless night that was given to King Ahasuerus. Secondly, the sudden reversal that took place on account of the king's sleepless night. And then finally, an unwitting prophecy of Haman's demise. That comes from an unexpected source. Verse 1 tells us that night, King Ahasuerus couldn't sleep. And for the king's choice, sleep aid, this particular night, the text informs us that he summons one of his servants to open up the record book of his reign might be a bit surprising that the king can't sleep tonight. After all, he had spent the afternoon at Esther's first banquet. He had concluded his day with the banquet of wine. And we know Ahasuerus was very generous in his consumption of wine. He should have had no problem sleeping tonight. Yet nonetheless, he could not sleep. He tossed and turned. And so finally, for some form of entertainment, or perhaps to help him fall asleep, he summons a servant to read to him. And the text says that the book which was chosen to be read was the book of records of the Chronicles. And this refers to the king's own record book of his own reign. And that choice fits Ahasuerus' character as we've seen it so far, doesn't it? What else would Ahasuerus want for his bedtime story besides his own biography? What's more interesting than himself? And so he summons this poor servant in the middle of the night to come and read the very dull record of King Ahasuerus' own reign. And Persian record books are known to not be that lively. It's simply a list of royal acts and decrees a list of income and rewards. It would be like reading the minutes of a committee meeting. Maybe that was the point. To get a Ahasuerus to fall asleep. Now you can picture the scene. a Ahasuerus is lying back in his luxurious bed. Listening to his servants monotone reading of the records of his reign. And suddenly something catches the king's attention. And he sits up in his bed. What was that? The reader. Had just said, verse 2. It wasn't ancient history that was being read to him. It was the recent events of his own reign. And Ahasuerus hears about this plot of Bigfin and t that had been recorded in his book five years ago. You remember at the end of chapter 2. After the assassination plot of the king's two chamberlains was reported to him, there was an inquisition made. It was discovered that the plot was true. Bigfen and Tiresh were sentenced to death. And the king saw to it that that was recorded in his record book. Well now, he hears of that. And he asks in verse 3, What was done for this man, this Mordecai? This civil official who sits at the king's gate. What was done for him to reward him for this uncovering of a plot against my life? And the reader, the servant scans the page and his answer is nothing, your majesty. Nothing is written here. The deed was recorded, but the man was unrewarded. And for some reason now, this bothered King Ahasuerus that night. He was bothered that no reward had been given to Mordecai. We see the hand of God in that, don't we? And yet we can see some self-interest on King Ahasuerus's part. It was in Ahasuerus's best interest to openly reward those who rendered some service to him, particularly uncovering plots against his life, that incentivized Others to be on the lookout for such plots if they knew they would be handsomely rewarded. And there was a certain danger to being a king who did not reward such service. That might plant seeds for future plots against your life by sowing dissatisfaction among your subjects. And so King Ahasuerus decides this night that he has to do something about this unrewarded man. But as we've seen with Ahasuerus in the past, this man has real problems making decisions all by himself. He always has to consult his advisors to know what to do. He couldn't even make a decision what to do with Vashti by himself. He had to gather the princes and Memucan and the others to figure out how to deal with his queen. And so too here, in the middle of the night, Ahasuerus is paralyzed by indecision. What do I do to rectify the situation? He needs his advisors. And so Ahasuerus somewhat absurdly blurts out, it's the middle of the night remember, who's in the court? He's desperately looking for someone to help him. Who's in the court? As if there's going to be some advisor hanging out in his private court in the middle of the night. And Ah, verse 4. It just so happens, as verse 4 tells us, Now Haman was come into the outward court of the king's house to speak unto the king, to hang Mordecai on the gallows that he had prepared for him. At this very moment that King Ahasuerus is vexed about how he's going to rectify the situation of the unrewarded Mordecai, who should show up in the king's outer court but Haman himself? Striking. Now, maybe we wonder, How is it that Haman is coming unbidden into the king's court in the middle of the night? Esther risked her life coming unbidden in broad daylight. The answer here is we must remember that Haman, who was set above the seven princes of Persia who saw the king's face, Haman was one of the privileged few who could come to the king unannounced. Now, of course, he is pressing things here by coming during the middle of the night. Nonetheless, Haman had that special right as the king's right-hand man. Seems that Haman was having a sleepless night also. He'd spent his evening, Haman had, overseeing the construction of his 75-foot pole. And now he could not rest until he had it decorated with Mordecai's body. So hot did Haman's hatred burn, so wounded was his pride, that he could not sleep either until he had gotten his revenge. And so he had heeded the advice of his wife and advisors to build this pole, but he would not heed the second part of their advice, which was, wait till tomorrow morning. Haman couldn't wait. And so in the middle of the night, he goes to Ahasuerus. To secure permission to kill Mordecai. So the king had asked, who's in the court? You can imagine the glum servant, not too pleased with his nightly duties, setting aside the record book and getting up and going out of the king's bedchamber and taking a look into the outer court. And lo and behold, Haman is standing there. The language of the text draws an interesting parallel. Remember in chapter five, Esther stood in the outer court before going into the king's audience chamber. Now, Haman is standing there. And the servant reports back, Haman, Haman is there. He's just arrived and he's looking to see you. You can can imagine what Ahasuerus was thinking. Perfect, perfect timing. I need someone to help me decide what to do for Mordecai and who should show up but my favorite, my chief advisor, Haman, my prime minister. And so he says to the servant, let him come in. Let him come in. And Haman is ushered into the king's bedchamber. Haman is undoubtedly pleased. He's received an audience with the king even late at night. And as Haman is preparing his words to make his request to have Mordecai executed, Ahasuerus speaks up first. Providentially. Ahasuerus speaks first. And he asks Haman the question. The simple question. Which sets up this man's downfall. That is charted now through the rest of chapter 6 and chapter 7. Ahasuerus says. What shall be done unto the man whom the king delighteth to honor. Haman latches onto those words. Honor, the man the king delighteth to honor. What have we seen of Haman so far? Honor was his God. Haman loved nothing more than public recognition, the praise of men. He wanted to be honored by every single person in Persia. What shall be done for the man whom the king delighteth to honor? And Haman, bloated with his pride, thinks to himself, Who could the king possibly be talking about? But me! Now Haman thought in his heart, that the text says, To whom would the king delight to do honor more than myself? Who else would the king possibly have in mind? And so Haman's heart leaps with excitement. What a golden opportunity he has now. A golden opportunity to make his request to the king. My initial request to hang Mordecai can wait. Here's something much, much better. The king has conveniently omitted the name of the man whom he delights to honor. I know it's me, but because he hasn't said it, I can look humble, I can look generous, I can ask for anything and not look like I'm Asking for myself. And so Haman hastily seizes the opportunity extended to him. And he's so eager that he omits the the usual courtly courtesy that we have seen Esther use so carefully. If it please the king. Haman doesn't say that. But Haman just bursts out his request. And that's verses 7, 8, and 9. And as we read these verses, notice how often. In Haman's words, the phrase, the man the king delighteth to honor. Notice how often it occurs. Haman is obsessed with this idea that he is the man who the king wants to honor. Esther 6, verses 7 through 9. Haman answered the king, for the man whom the king delighteth to honor. Let the royal apparel be brought, which the king useth to wear, and the horse that the king rideth upon, and the crown royal which is set upon his head. And let this apparel and horse be delivered to the hand of one of the king's most noble princes, that they may array the man withal, whom the king delighteth to honor, and bring him on horseback through the street of the city, and proclaim before him, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delighteth to honor. Haman's answer here tells us a whole lot about Haman, doesn't it? This man who is a glutton for honor. This is his dream. To receive honor that is as close as possible to that of the king. In fact, that's probably what Haman really desired deep down, was to be the king. But he knew he could not ask to sit upon Ahasuerus' throne, and so he asks for things that will get him as close to that as possible. Let the king's own robe, which he wears, be put on me. Let the king's own horse, which he rode to battle, let the man whom the king delights to honor, be put upon that horse, with the king's own crown. There's a question of interpretation there whether he was talking about the king's crown that the king wore on his own head. Or the ceremonial headdress that was put on the king's war horse. It could be either. But either way, it denotes the highest possible honor that could be given to a man by the king. And then Haman adds, wouldn't it be great if one of the king's greatest princes perform the lowly role the lowly role of a herald to take that horse lead it through the streets of shushan the city and call out thus shall it be done for the man whom the king delighteth to honor haman had it all figured out this was his dream and it was about to come true for him As an aside, we see something else about pride here, do we not? We see something else about idolatry. The proud man and the idolater are never satisfied. Haman had been raised to the highest position in Persia under the king, and it still wasn't enough for him. And that's the case with every sinful lust of the heart. That's the lie of sin. The lie of sin is, if you get this, if you satisfy this lust, then you will be happy. Then it will be enough. It's never enough. Lust is ever hungry. Pride is never satisfied. It always screams more and more. And the more it gets, the more it wants. And the proud idolater is constantly miserable. That's Haman. Before we move on in the history, to look at the king's response to Haman's suggestion of what should be done for the man whom the king delights to honor, let's pause a moment and look at what's really happening here. Everything that has happened that sleepless night was God's quiet work. The unnamed God, the unseen king is here. And as has been emphasized over and over as we've gone through the book of Esther, where God appears to be conspicuously absent, there he is present. And there the book of Esther is emphasizing his presence. Look at the events that sleepless night. A most remarkable sequence of apparent coincidences. A most remarkable coming together of unlikely occurrences. Ahasuerus couldn't sleep. Why? He'd spent the evening drinking wine. And because he couldn't sleep, of all things the king could do, and the king had many entertainment options at his disposal when he couldn't sleep, of all things, he asks for the record book of his reign to be read. And of all things, the reader reads the history of five years ago when the plot of Bigthan and Tiresh was uncovered. And of all times, this is when Ahasuerus becomes very concerned about the fact that Mordecai wasn't rewarded. And now at the unlikeliest time, at the perfect moment, Haman should appear in the king's court seeking to have Mordecai hung upon his gallows. The timing is impeccable. And then how the conversation between Haman and the king plays out. Rather than Haman speaking first and bringing his request, the king asks this question and Haman Jumps to a fatal conclusion that the king has him in mind. It's a most remarkable sequence of apparent coincidences. What can possibly explain it? Here at the center of the book of Esther. Is Jehovah God the unseen king working quietly that night? Unseen, unacknowledged, God is at work in all of these details. God is bringing all of the threads of seeming coincidence together so as to accomplish His purpose of protecting and preserving His people. Why is it that Ahasuerus couldn't sleep? Esther 6 verse 1 could be translated this way, sleep fled from the king. Sleep fled from him because God sent his sleep away. God held his eyes in waking. God opened the record book and guided the reader's hand to the page on which Mordecai's unrewarded deed had been recorded. God pricked the heart of the king. Not to give him genuine guilt, but likely to give him self-interested worry about the fact that this man hadn't been rewarded. He needs to cover his bases to protect himself. God made Ahasuerus suddenly concerned about this. And God it was that brought Haman to the outer court of the king at this precise timing. The impeccable timing is God's own timing. Now yes, Haman was coming to the king because he couldn't sleep that night. His heart was so full of black hatred against Haman or against Mordecai that Haman had to go and get permission to kill him as soon as possible. But God sovereignly used that. God sovereignly used that black hatred in Haman's heart as the goad to drive Haman to Ahasuerus at this precise moment. So that Haman shows up right when the king, Is wrestling with the question. What shall I do. For the man. I want to honor. And God put the words on their tongues. And there's irony here. Though it's unintentional. Ahasuerus does to Haman. What Haman had done to him. Remember when Haman presented his request. For the extermination of the Jews to Ahasuerus. Haman carefully omitted the name of the people he wanted destroyed. Ahasuerus here does the same. He omits the name of the man whom he purposes to honor. And that omission of the identity of Mordecai leads Haman to make that fatal assumption that Ahasuerus is talking about himself. And in this, God is at work. God is putting Haman in a slippery place so that in his justice and judgment, Haman may presently be cast down to his deserved destruction. This is the quiet work of the unseen king. Is it not remarkable and unmistakable? And that needs to be applied to us. God is at work in the smallest details of our lives too. Even in something as ordinary as a sleepless night. And God is able to use even those small details to change the course of history. That's what happens here. Because Ahasuerus has this sleepless night. The direction that the book of Esther is taking is turned. It's turned in the favor of God's people. God's quiet work that night. Nobody saw it. Nobody was aware of it. Nobody acknowledged it. And yet it was history determining. What peace, what comfort, what calmness Does it give us when we live in light of that truth? Let us. It's hard sometimes. But let us fix the eyes of our faith upon this reality. And strive to look at all of the things in our lives. The seeming coincidences. The seeming small things. As well as the big things. And recognize that the hidden hand of God is quietly working in them. Even if we don't see how. And he's accomplishing his purpose. Another important point that comes out of this history. Is that God is sovereign. And deliverance comes from God alone. Notice. Even though all of the human characters in the history here have their own plans and purposes. Whose counsel stands? Jehovah's. This turning point in the history of Esther does not hinge upon any human agency. Haman comes with his own plans and purposes. Ahasuerus has his own plans and purposes. Esther is doing her thing. But none of those people are the ones that turn history around. God alone does. Using something as ordinary as the king's sleepless night. The whole history of chapter 6 hinges on that event completely outside of human control. It's the pivotal point. A sleepless night for the king. If the king hadn't had this sleepless night, the record book would not have been opened. And Mordecai's unrewarded deed would not have been brought before the king. Haman would have come and likely obtained his request. Mordecai very likely would have been hung upon the gallows the next morning. And then Esther would have been deprived of the man who would later help write the decree that reverses the king's extermination decree. History would have gone in a completely different direction if it were not for the king's sleepless night. Which was by divine design. And again, the point of all of this is it's in God's hands alone. History and the direction of history, world history, church history, your personal history, all of it does not depend upon human agency, but is in the hand of God. All of this proclaims to us salvation, deliverance is of the Lord and the Lord alone what better hands to have our lives in to have world history in there are no better hands than the hands of Jehovah our King well that night a sudden reversal took place and here we come back to the history guided by the sovereign hand of the unseen King Haman's own pride and and idolatrous obsession with his own honor becomes the very thing that leads to his demise. We come back to the bedchamber of Ahasuerus. The king has asked his question. Haman has given his answer. He's relishing this moment. It must have seemed to him that things couldn't get any better. He has reached the mountain peak. You can picture Haman quivering with excitement as he awaits the king's answer. And Ahasuerus speaks. And in Ahazuerus's words comes a sudden reversal that dashes Haman's dream to a billion pieces, and now Haman's plan backfires in the most spectacular fashion. Esther 6 verse 10. Then the king said to Haman, Make haste, and take the apparel and the horse, as thou hast said. And do even so to Mordecai the Jew that sitteth at the king's gate. Let nothing fail of all that thou hast spoken. You can visualize the scene. Haman standing there having just recounted in detail the honor that he so covets. Believing the king is about to order that it be done to him just as he said, because the king couldn't possibly be thinking about anyone but Haman. And instead Ahasuerus says, Mordecai the Jew. How Haman kept his composure is a mystery. His, his heart froze and hit the floor. He must have wished he was sleeping at that point having just divulged the greatest desire of his heart, the thing that he believed would give him pure happiness, having gotten so close to it that he could taste it, it's now ripped away from him, and understanding washes over him how badly he had misinterpreted the king's initial question. Ahasuerus had somebody else in mind. And while Haman had been envisioning his dream come true, Ahasuerus was taking notes from his ever insightful advisor, how to honor somebody else. And to make it 10,000 times worse for Haman, of all people that Ahasuerus delights to honor, Mordecai? Mordecai the Jew? Very interesting here. That Ahasuerus puts it that way, Mordecai the Jew. It again shows us Ahasuerus had no idea what was going on in his kingdom. He's the only person in Persia that doesn't know that the edict he published for the extermination of a people was for the extermination of the Jews. And here Haman's subtlety backfires. Haman had hidden the identity of this people from Ahasuerus. And now Ahasuerus, who doesn't know, decides he's going to elevate a Jew to the highest honor. It backfires most spectacularly. Again, do you not see the divine design in all of this? Mordecai, Mordecai. The reason Haman is here is he has a 75 foot pole waiting for Mordecai. That was Haman's plan for tomorrow morning. And now Haman is realizing tomorrow morning is going to be very different for him. Tomorrow morning, he's going to be leading his worst enemy around the city. After he's dressed his worst enemy in the king's royal robe and mounted his worst enemy on the king's royal horse. And Haman gets the privilege of being that most honorable prince who takes the role of a humble stable boy. And herald, going around Shushan declaring, thus it shall be done to the man, not this one, that one, whom the king delights to honor. Instead of hanging Mordecai on a 75-foot gallows, Haman is going to be leading Mordecai around to receive the honor of the entire capital city. Here's the thrust of it. Remember how much it bothered Haman when just one man didn't pay attention to him? When Mordecai refused to pay him public honor? This is Haman's worst nightmare. For the day, he has to go around the whole city pointing to Mordecai and watch Mordecai receive all the honor while he is ignored by everybody. From the mountain peak, Haman is in free fall down the other side. Let's see some applications from this. First. Again, pride. Pride. Haman is a living example that pride goeth before the fall. God has joined those two things together pride and falling, and man cannot put them asunder. The proud man often thinks he can put those two things asunder, that he will not fall. That's what Haman thought. He was on the top of the world, he was the most powerful man in Persia underneath the king. And look how this sequence of coincidences completely undoes him. God causes Haman to fall. And so it is with everyone who exalts themselves in pride. And there is a warning for us in that. Let us not lift ourselves up in pride like Haman and go on in that pride. There will be a fall. Now the comfort for the child of God who is wrestling with pride is the reality that when God deals with us and humbles our pride. He chastens us in his fatherly love that he may restore us. Haman will be cast down to destruction, but the child of God who walks in pride will be abased, but that abasement serves his salvation. There is the comfort, but let us hear the warning and take it seriously. Pride leads to a fall, often a sudden fall, like we see here in Haman. And so let us examine ourselves. Is there anywhere in our lives we're living like Haman? Lifting ourselves up over others, despising others, seeing ourselves as the one who ought to be honored, even the ones who ought to be honored by God himself. Let us heed the word of Scripture. Humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God, that in due time, he, he may lift us up. Well, Haman had no choice but to do what the king commanded. And so utterly distraught on the inside, but forcing himself to put on a face and obey, Haman goes forth the next morning to make his own nightmare reality. The text reports in simplest terms what happened the following morning. Verse 11. Then took Haman the apparel and the horse and arrayed Mordecai and brought him on horseback through the streets of the city and proclaimed before him, thus shall it be done unto the man whom the king delighteth to honor. The shortness of verse 11's report of this event says enough. No words of Mordecai are recorded. He didn't need to speak. This must have surprised him and he must have been quite gratified by the fact That Haman had to do this. Haman kept his black rage inside. As he went about that day shouting until his voice was hoarse. Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king desires to honor. Loathing every second of it. In the agony of complete humiliation. The reversal is complete. Haman had been promoted. Haman had secured the vengeful edict of extermination. And while Haman and the king had feasted, the Jews were in mourning. But now there is a reversal that morning. Foreshadowing the reversal that is coming in the rest of the book. Now Haman is humbled. As the text describes, he goes home after this horrible day. The worst day of his life. He goes home mourning. Utterly humiliated with his head covered for shame. And that too foreshadows what's going to happen when he leaves Esther's second banquet with his head covered. A couple more applications before we get to the conclusion of the chapter. This sudden reversal of Haman's position and plans is a comfort to the church. By faith we've seen God's hand in this. And as history teaches us, this is how God works. He works quietly in the night to protect and preserve His people. Sometimes things are so dark that it seems as though we're living in a perpetual night. Sometimes it feels as though God is silent, that He's far away, that He's distant. That would have been the case For any faithful Jews in Shushan at this time. But God was there working quietly in the night. And God's quiet work in the night is just as powerful, just as mighty, and just as effectual. As his great big works that are visible to men. This was a deliverance for the Jews just as real as Noah's flood was a deliverance. For Noah and his family back then. Even though we look at the flood and say, wow, look at that tremendous act of deliverance. God's quiet work in the night is just as mighty and effective as here He turns the course of history to begin the undoing of the adversaries of His people. To protect Zerubbabel and the line of Christ in faraway Jerusalem. Quiet work work of god that night brought deliverance to his people god works that way today satan the world every enemy of the church they have their plans they have their plots they have their purposes they're scheming all the time but all of their plans and purposes are on a collision course with the council Of almighty God. And the history shows what happens. When the plots. Of Satan. The world. And our enemies. Collide with God's plan and counsel. Their plans and purposes. Are utterly. Thwarted. And destroyed. And great is the fall of them. Let us trust our God. Not only when he works in big visible ways, but when he more often works quietly in the night. But there's comfort also in this that there is a man whom the unseen king delights to honor. And that man is the man Jesus Christ. A man who comes to honor in a way very different than Haman or Mordecai for that matter. The man who comes to honor through humbling himself for his people. Christ is the king who has the crown and yet he laid aside his glory. He left heaven to be born of a virgin and laid in a manger. To be wrapped in swaddling clothes. Christ rode a horse too. But it wasn't the mighty steed of a king. But was the humble donkey that he picked up in a village outside of Jerusalem. And though he entered Jerusalem to the acclaim of the people. Within a week's time. Those same people would be shouting crucify him. Christ. He was rejected of men, reproached, spit upon, struck upon the face, flogged. He had a crown of thorns pressed into his head. He was crucified on Golgotha, the hill of the skull. And there in the night, in those three hours of darkness, that no man could penetrate, that no eye could see through, the crucified Christ bore the holy wrath of God against the sins of all of his people. There on the cross, Christ humbled himself unto death that he might bring deliverance to his people. From his greatest humility comes greatest exaltation. As Philippians 2, verses 8 through 10, says, He humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore, God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name that is above every name. Christ is the one God delights to honor. And in Christ's honor, we are given a share. We are given a share. For we are his people purchased with his precious blood. Redeemed for his own. United to him by his Holy Spirit. God ever delights to honor and to lift up his people in Jesus Christ. Even though we don't deserve it. Even though we by nature are like Haman. He lifts us from the dunghill of our sins. And crowns us with his loving kindness and his tender mercy. He robes us in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Gives us a seat. In his house and at the wedding feast of the Lamb. Shall we not honor him, our God and our King? Shall we not honor Christ? The man whom God delights to honor. But now back to the history. To an unwitting prophecy. Esther 6 ends with an unwitting prophecy from an unexpected source. That is, words spoken, the meaning of which was beyond the full grasp of the speaker. And that's the prediction of Haman's downfall by Zeresh and his wife, contained in the last few verses of the chapter. After Haman's worst day of parading Mordecai around the city, Haman came home with his head covered mourning. And upon reaching home, he pours out his heart to Zeresh, his wife, and his friends who were gathered there that day, telling them of all his woes. You remember, Haman did this yesterday too. He came home from Esther's first banquet, puffed up with pride, had his pride poked through by Mordecai's act of defiance. And so he came home and he tried to prop himself up again by boasting to his wife and his friends. But then he tells them, none of this avails me anything so long as Mordecai the Jew is sitting there at the king's gate. Well now, Haman doesn't have anything to boast about. He just comes to lament his woes. And now, there is a complete reversal in the advice and in the words that Zeresh, his wife, and his friends give him. As they hear Haman explain what has happened to him, even they see his inescapable demise coming. Even they see all of these things can't be a coincidence. And even though these unbelieving pagan Persians will not acknowledge the one true God, even they, though they won't admit it, see. Hand of God in these things. And so in verse 13, Zeresh and his friends say this Then said his wise men and Zeresh his wife unto him, If Mordecai be of the seed of the Jews before whom thou hast begun to fall, thou shalt not prevail against him, but shalt surely fall before him. You notice that. Haman's friends here are called wise men for the first time, because this is the only piece of wisdom that they give him. Their words are true. He has begun to fall, and he shall not prevail, but shall fall to the ground. They recognize that the king has chosen to exalt someone that Haman is seeking to destroy, and that puts Haman in a very bad position of having to explain to people why there's a 70-foot Or 75 foot pole outside his house. Which Haman has erected for the man whom the king delights to honor. That's not a very enviable position to have. Haman's fall down the other side of the mountain is starting. And he's gaining speed. But now in Zeresh and his friend's words. There is an unwitting prophecy. If Mordecai be of the seed of the Jews before whom thou hast begun to fall, thou shalt not prevail against him of the seed of the Jews. Those words echo, do they not? That old prophecy of the unbelieving prophet Balaam in Numbers 24. Remember how Balaam was hired by Balak? To curse Israel. And Balaam though he desired to. Could not curse God's people. God would not let him. Instead God compelled him to bless. And the revelation of that prophecy. Was that the house of Jacob is an uncursible house. Because their God is for them. For example in Numbers 24. Balak or rather Balaam says this about Israel. He shall pour the water out of his buckets, and his seed shall be in many waters, and his king shall be higher than Agag. Haman is of the house of Agag. This blessing of God upon Israel abides yet to this day. Israel shall be higher than Agag. And there is the hand of God in putting Mordecai on that horse instead of Haman. God is fulfilling this prophecy yet. And unwittingly, Zeresh and Haman's friends are recognizing that reality. Haman, you cannot prevail. Because the man that sets himself against Israel, sets himself against the God of Israel. And against that coming seed, Jesus Christ. About whom Balaam also prophesied in verse 17 of Numbers 24. Where Balaam says, I shall see him, but not now. I shall behold him, but not nigh. There shall come a star out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. God's people are unconquerable and uncursable. And Haman, who has set himself up against God's people, Against the seed of the Jews. Has set himself against the Christ. And the only outcome can be. That he will be dashed. To pieces like a potter's vessel. And with those words of his coming doom still ringing in his ears. Who shows up. But the king's chamberlains to whisk. Haman away to the second banquet of Esther. And that's chapter 7. Haman is now in free fall. Down the other side of the mountain. And at the bottom. Is his own 75 foot pole. And we will see that next week. But a concluding comfort. The history again emphasizes. To those who belong to the seed. The seed who is Christ. Nothing can prevail against us. You think of Jesus' words. The very gates of hell shall not prevail against his church. In these dark days, the night of the New Testament age, as we see the darkness around us, let us remember God's quiet work in the night and hold fast to this truth. Satan, his host, All the powers of darkness. They have already begun to fall. They began to fall at the cross. And their destruction is assured. None can prevail. Against Christ. The seed. Amen. Heavenly Father we thank Thee for this. Instructive and comforting history. Grant that we may take it with us. And that we may have our eyes open to thy quiet work, even in the night seasons of our lives. That we may ever trust thee, and know that the whole course of history, and our own life history, is directed by thee to a good end. The end of our eternal salvation. May this knowledge strengthen us to bear our burdens in this life, with our heads hopefully uplifted, and looking to the coming of Christ our Lord. This all we pray and ask in His name. Amen.